0: Welcome to another episode of Rise Together. Today, we welcome Rosemary Ketchum. Rosemary has been a community organizer in Wheeling, West Virginia, for about a decade. Now, she's the state's first openly transgender elected official. As the associate director of the city's local drop-in center for the National Alliance for Mental Illness, she worked with community members experiencing poverty, homelessness, and mental health issues. A lot of the problems with access to mental health care in the area were systemic. And over her decade of advocacy work, she saw that they weren't being addressed properly. So she ran for office. National media expressed shock when Ketchum was elected in a small town in a conservative state. Her victory? It's historic. In addition to being the first in her state, Ketchum is also one of only 27 out trans-elected officials in the country while there are an estimated 1.4 million trans people in the United States. Ladies and gentlemen, let's rise together with Rosemary Ketchum. What would the world look like if we all pushed ourselves to have candid conversations with people who didn't look like us, think like us, or live like us? I'm Dave Hollis, and I'm on a mission to learn more about this world by meeting more of the people who live here. You may not always agree with everything you hear, but I guarantee you'll come away more informed on topics you might never have thought to seek out before. This isn't just a podcast, it's a community. And when we raise each other up, we all rise together. All right, ladies and gentlemen, Rosemary Ketchum is here Uh, I'm so excited to have you, Rosemary. Thank you so much for being on the show today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So just by way of introducing yourself a bit to the guests of this Rise Together podcast, will you give us just a little background, just a little history in how you got your start in mental health advocacy and maybe how that advocacy led to what you do today?
1: Wonderful. Uh, So I've been a community organizer in the state of West Virginia for quite a few years now. And I started community organizing for a few reasons, but most importantly, to really engage my community on a few really key issues. And those key issues include racial justice and LGBTQ equality, but also mental health. And mental health has been a through line in my life and my family's life uh, for a very long time. So uh, I went to school for psychology, because I I love, you know, uh, everything about the human brain, and and I have a lot of questions about the decisions we make and the behaviors we have, and uh, I was lucky enough to get a job uh, while I was in college um, as a director of a mental health facility.
0: Wow. So you had something that you were passionate about. I'm going to assume that you, in some way, saw a need inside of your community, and at some point, you decide to pivot from your work inside of this advocacy to running for office. Mm-hmm. which does not, um, you know, like doesn't feel crazy because, of course, if you have passion and you see need and you think yourself to be the most qualified human being that could ha- help bring change or policy to the thing that has issue in your, uh, you know, in your town or your or your state, uh, fantastic. Uh, it turns out that in making the decision to move from advocacy, that you happened to have become the state's first openly transgender elected official. But... <laughs> I'm going to assume, and I don't want to assume, I shouldn't assume anything, that you ran because of your belief in you being the most qualified candidate who happened to have been transgender, but I'm curious what the inspiration was in wanting to jump into politics and how how your identity, in some way or not, played a role in that choice to get in the mix.
1: Great question. I never wanted to run for office, and you know, I, as a community organizer, uh, as a grassroots organizer, kind of loved the idea of being, you know, kind of scrappy and underdog and sticking it to the man. And, uh, I, and, and while doing that, we worked on some really, really important issues. I got some things done, uh, you know, more often we failed than, than, uh, uh than one our issues, uh, but that's politics. And, uh, I always acknowledged and knew that while we had policy positions and we had, you know, we, we wrote bills and we knew what needed to be done to solve a lot of the issues um, that we cared about, eventually and inevitably, the biggest obstacles were the elected officials that we needed to convince uh, to support our cause. And they were often uh, less compassionate, less sympathetic, and less motivated than anybody else, <laughs> unfortunately. And, you know, and even then, I I didn't decide that I should be the person to run for office. I asked all my friends uh, that you know if they would run for office, and some of them did, uh, most of them didn't. And it, you know, it, I came to the realization that if we wanted to act actualize the issues we cared most about, uh, we had to take the next step and you know support you know members of our advocacy groups and, you know, organizations to run themselves. So uh, I I always loved supporting other candidates, but, you know, this time it turned out to be my turn.
0: It's so, I mean, I I love it. I I read the quote that you had in Time Magazine. I mean, hello, Time Magazine covering (laughs) local politics as they should. Uh, Your quote was, I never considered running for office, not because I didn't think I could do the job, but I just didn't think I was allowed. And so, man, for anyone who in any way has ever afforded what they think you can do or what is okay or not okay, there's something amazing in this recognition that any of us can be called to step into an opportunity like this. And you you heeded the call inside of a state that had never previously recognized someone who is like you to do this job. And you were you were voted in, you were elected. So I mean, it's an amazing thing.
1: Yeah, you know, I think uh, unfortunately West Virginia isn't always cast in the most flattering light. There are a lot of misconceptions about our state, a lot of things that people believe, uh, and and who may never have been to our state before. And you know, with with this election, I did I definitely didn't didn't anticipate you know national headlines. I thought if if I made the front page of our local paper, I'd probably frame it. Um, and so to see the, the, you know, the country respond in such a positive way, I hope impacts also the narrative that people have about West Virginia.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting thing. Anytime anyone does a first, anyone anytime has an only right? Like you are in a town called Wheeling that I'm going to guess most listeners of the Rise Together podcast couldn't find on the map. (laughs) Man, the media, they love a story about the first or only. And in your case, the national news attention or the focus of this, um, you know, smaller town kind of thing becoming something that might be picked up by bigger publications has to have been, um, I'm going to guess, unexpected but was, was there something in it that you were prepared for or was it just absolutely, holy cow, what in the world is going on?
1: You know, it's thrilling for sure. I mean, I gained thousands of Twitter followers overnight and, you know, like you said, Time Magazine gives you a call and CNN and MSNBC. Uh, and y- yes, it is somewhat overwhelming. I did not prepare for it. However, you know, I think, you know, it my race and the his, somewhat historic nature of the race was compounded by all of the other things happening in the world. I mean, I was elected during Pride Month uh, by accident. I mean, our original election day was in May. and so it needed to be pushed back because of COVID. Uh, the you know um, Supreme Court of the United States, of course, um, ruled inside of um, transgender, workplace protections and their SCOTUS decision, all of that, I think, kind of, uh, those were the ingredients for a a national, uh, story that, that was kind of riveting and made sense and, and hopefully also provided some hope, you know, in a world that seems kind of hopeless.
0: Yeah. So let's, let's talk for just two seconds about the federal civil rights law that the Supreme Court of the United States held up protecting gay, lesbian, transgender workers. Mm -hmm. It, uh, I I don't know if it was a surprise. It felt like, man, what an awesome affirmation of a thing that ought to exist. And yet, um, it happening during Pride felt super serendipitous. And the fact that it was happening as other stories like your own were making news felt like it was just, uh, you know, good thing on good thing. But talk a little bit about what a decision like that means inside of the community and how the confirmation of protection in some ways affords the ability for you to continue to do the work of advocacy and the work inside of the community.
1: Yeah, so I, I mean, uh, forever, uh, it has been the case that you know LGBT people uh, have been on the front end of discriminatory workplace practices. If your boss learned that you you know, um, had a spouse of the same sex, or, you know, simply were dating someone who they didn't approve of, that was also of the same sex, you could be fired or not hired at all. And that was, you know, legal on the basis um, of their right to do so. And, you know, that happens, happened, and I'm sure will continue to happen often. Um, And for me, it was a surprise that uh, the, the uh, you know, United States Supreme Court ruled in favor of transgender workplace protections, not because I didn't think it would ever happen, but I mean, this is the most conservative court of our lifetime. And for one of the more conservative justices on this court, Justice Neil Gorsuch, a Trump appointee to make the majority opinion was uh, refreshing and, and absolutely historic. So it also, I think, you know, it had given me hope that maybe, uh, you know, the 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 judiciary, you know, component of our our government. Is less polarized than others because, you know, again, you know, if it were a political court, um, they would have not, you know, voted in favor of, of transgender uh, or LGBT workplace protection. So that was really incredible, and also the DACA uh, uh, decision as well. Just I think one or two days later was, I mean, also incredibly powerful. So this has been an incredibly convoluted Pride Month in some really great ways, and in some ways not so
0: much. Uh, a lot of people, I'm going to guess, listening to the show, I'm myself included, I started our conversation before we were recording, representing that I do not have as much kind of just like knowledge of the experience of a person who is transgender. And I, uh, man, I'm, I love an idea of having a conversation like this so that I can also sit closer and become a little bit smarter. Uh, I mean, my exposure... To trans visibility, as it were, has more than anything come through shows like *Transparent* or *Orange Is the New Black*. And um, I know, you know, Laverne Cox being on the cover of *Time* back in 2014 is a thing that I can, you know, I can still remember. Like, wow, right. look at this. But I have not myself really leaned into and had, you know, a doing life with someone kind of experience to actually understand what it what it is that you are having to um overcome when it comes to societal anything for anyone who may be like me can you just you know help dimensionalize a little bit of what you know like the community at large mm-hmm. has to work through I, I'm, I'm not looking i mean if you have them stats are great but like i you know i just i don't have a perfect handle on kind of what it is to kind of row against the current of the world that we live inside of
1: Yeah. No, I mean, it's incredibly, you know, cultural, all the implications that we deal with are societal and cultural, especially as trans folks, because, you know, essentially we are betraying the societal expectation of our biological sex. We are saying we don't feel this way. This isn't the way it works, at least not for us. And, and that's really hard because, I mean, think about the centuries of built up societal expectation that has been affirmed for centuries until this last one. Um, you know. Although we know trans folks and LGBT folks have existed forever, I mean, you know, some of the first um, uh, kind of identifiers of, of the trans experience exist um, in Native American culture, uh, we have yet to have a real kind of inflection point uh, in cultural uh, consciousness or awareness. And I think that's happening now in a really powerful way. And so when I was a kid, there, you know, I'm 26 years old. I was born in 93. I, you know, did not have representation available to me in the way that we have now. And it makes, I mean, I feel old even saying it, but the only real introduction to the LGBT community that I had growing up was will and grace, which was meant to entertain and not educate. So um, I think for my parents as well, that was their only real uh, familiarity with LGBT culture. And while I love the show, it, it, it wasn't built to kind of, you know, be a masterclass in LGBTQ, you know, uh, lived experience. And I don't even, I can't even think if there was a trans portrayal, you know, in that TV show. Uh, and so nevertheless, I grew up and I, you know, really sought these representations that weren't kind of traumatic and tragic, you know, because the, what, thinking back to the, representations that I uh, knew most more closely as a kid of trans people, they were, you know, sex workers and, you know, uh, subject to incredible violence and were on the outskirts of, you know, their communities and, and used drugs. And and while that can be true and it's, uh, you know, a, a horrible pl- plight on the LGBT community, that was not the normalized, you know, thing that I think I needed as a <laughs> young trans person. Um, it was a, more frightening than anything. So I hope that now we have more normalized or typified uh, examples of the trans experience. I'm not a celebrity, I'm not a model I'm not a whatever you know I am a normal person doing normal things in a normal little town um, and I hate the word normal I work in mental health we never use it but in the context of culture, I think it's really important to see a very um, you know uh, a, a very healthy portrayal of the trans experience and You know, I I hope that we can influence our culture enough to make sure that's the, you know, that's the, that's a priority.
0: Yeah, no, that's good. I I heard you in an interview at one point talk about the distinction between ignorance and bigotry, Mm -hmm. which I think is such an important thing because, uh, one, I think there's just a lot of ignorance, uh, you know, and just kind of like what the experience of someone who's transgender actually is and what it means Can you just, for anyone who's a little less familiar with transgender in general, talk about that difference between the two and how there may be a a role that anyone who's listening can work against either?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, growing up trans, you encountered some of the most awkward experiences maybe ever, you know, especially being trans in rural America and, you know, I could, I remember, you know, having experiences with people who would ask me about my genitalia on the first, within the first five minutes, or they would, you know, point out my Adam's apple or just some weird, just weird things. And, um, you know, I've gained a lot of confidence over the years. I, you know, I'm no longer an insecure teenager, but I, I sooner or later began to identify and differentiate The people who were doing this on purpose and were unkind and and, and hateful in a way, Um, but differentiate that between the people who just did not know and did not have the language and were working with an empty toolbox. They had no frame of reference here. And, you know, I learned many times over that I was the first person, you know, this individual, first trans person, this individual had met. And, uh, you know, I tried to uh, you know, come to those situations with grace and diplomacy and patience because uh, the last thing I want to do is punish curiosity. Because the second somebody kind of goes out on a limb to ask a question they're uncomfortable with, if we slap their hand, they may never ask that question again, or they may never uh, feel a willingness to learn or understand. I, I understand that I am, for some people, the only trans representation that they see in their town. And I, while no trans person or LGBT person owes somebody their story or the facts about their personal history or medical history, I, I feel a kind of responsibility to try to be as open as possible for the folks who are, are genuinely curious and ignorant but want to build that toolbox, want to have the language you know, at their disposal so that the next time they meet somebody or have to have a conversation at a dinner table, You know, they're prepared to be an ally.
0: Now, that's good. I like that. On uh, this Rise Together podcast, we have a lot of parents that are listening, a lot of parents who, uh, if you're a parent, I think you have to have children. If uh, if you have children (laughs) that maybe um, are questioning their gender identity or have maybe recently come out as trans and you with your accomplishments, you're now obviously a very visible out trans person that they could potentially look up to. What is something that you would want these parents to know about how best to show up for their kids mm-hmm. if they find themselves in a situation where they're being introduced with something that they also may be unfamiliar with and don't totally know how to handle?
1: Mm. I would say embrace self-expression. One of, the, one of the most fascinating things to me, just from a psych mental health perspective, uh, you know, gender identity and, and gender roles are fascinating in and of themselves. Um, and there's a great discussion about nature, nurture, and what's innate and, and and what isn't. And I actually am fascinated by folks who aren't LGBT, the kind of gender expression that cisgender heterosexual people experience. Because as trans people and LGBT people, we are, you know, I think privileged to be liberated in our ability to um, have free self-expression. I mean, we do live in a world that does not is not always kind. But you know, I get to do this in a way that I, you know. I think I'm given permission because of my trans identity. A person who uh, does s- subscribe to you know more rigid gender roles, um, who is cisgender, heterosexual, they don't have the same liberties uh, to express themselves in in their gender identity or sexuality without having to you know. Um, you know, get permission or have to kind of qualify it in some way. And, and so for parents, I think, you know, it's easy to be scared and to not know what's going on and to, you know, and to hope that what you're doing is enough. And all I can say is that so long as you lead with love and compassion and, and let, your child know that you're an ally. Language is super important. I say this often that, you know, you never know who who you're in the room with. You never know what people are going through. And so you make a, a joke or you make a, you know, whatever. If somebody doesn't understand you're an ally, they may not be very uncomfortable around you. And so I think the language we use is is super, super important. And especially for children, they pick up on it so um, so incredibly. So, I mean, I remember being a kid and if somebody made a gay joke, whether it was, you know, in, you know just lighthearted or not, I remembered it. And I thought, oh, they might, you know, th- that's something I need to kind of note just for my own survival, I guess. And we live in a different world than, you know, we did 10, 15 years ago. Um, but I think those things still, still matter.
0: One thing that any listener can do, I got a tattoo on my arm. It just says the word ally. So it is very clear to anyone who is interested in having a conversation with me where I stand and wanting to be supportive of, frankly, anybody, anywhere, anytime. Let's go. Uh, I read, uh, you were quoted in Rewire saying, uh, when folks say, I can't believe a trans person can win in a place like West Virginia, I think This is the very place I believe a trans person could win elected office, and you've now proven that with your win. I'm curious, uh, on the campaign trail, did you run into anything that had you questioning the confidence of that statement? Were there there strange (laughs) encounters in the midst of of this, or was it, yep, I'm just going to be the most confident candidate, and uh, who I am Mm -hmm. will be led by the way that I can help bring advocacy and solutions to the city and not, you know, anything to do with my identity.
1: Yeah, it's, it's so funny. Campaigning is my favorite part. I mean, of running for office, knocking doors and, and, you know, face-to-face voter contact. And, you know, we were lucky enough to do that really early before COVID hit and nobody could do anything. Uh, we ran our race um, for about a whole year um, before election day while other candidates ran for four or five months. And, and, and we did that consciously because I understood that while I have worked in the city of Wheeling for a decade, community organizing and building relationships, there were plenty of people for whom I did not uh, know and did count on their vote that I needed to engage with and speak to. So I, I did a lot of the, the groundwork early on and I had some really wonderful, uh, humbling experiences, a few awkward ones, None that were traumatic or tragic. I did have one experience where we were um, driving to a part of our district that was that's more rural, uh, and that I have not I have not had a whole lot of experience in. And it's a a district that is in two counties, so it's a little awkward. I remember you know driving up there and kind of getting lost in the in the streets we were trying to find, and seeing a bar and parking in the uh, parking lot of the bar and walking inside. Uh, and Me and my, my volunteer and we walk in and like stereotypically one of those saloon scenes where the music cuts and everything gets quiet and people start whispering and we kind of walk in um, and walk up to the, the bartender and ask where a specific street was and uh, you know everybody is kind of furrowed brow and looking at us and, and very suspicious. And uh, she, she says, so what are you doing up here? And I say, well, I'm running for office, blah, blah, blah. And I thank her. Uh, and we leave uh, and we do our canvassing. We're gone for hours. I left my car parked in the parking lot. And we come back to the car and it's like dusk. And we get in the car and somebody from the bar runs out and is, is hailing us saying, hey, hey, hey. And immediately, I think, oh, my God, I'm going to get in trouble for parking here. I'm so Yeah, and I feel very bad. And he runs out, uh, and he runs up to our car um, just before we drive away. And says, he said, uh, you're the worst politician I've ever met. And I say, oh, I'm sorry. And of course, I'm filled with insecurity. I'm like, oh, my gosh, this isn't working. Um, and this, mind you, was the first day I'd ever gone out to Canvas. Um, and he said, you're the worst politician I've ever met because you didn't introduce yourself. And I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I was just lost and whatever. Uh, and he said, when you left, the whole bar um had a conversation about whether you were a man or a woman. And I was like, and my volunteer was kind of like, oh. And I was like, oh, okay. And he said, Bob said, I think that was a I think that was a girl, but Sally said, no, nah, that must have been a man. And <laughs> I'm like trying to hold in my laughter because it's this is just it's a lot to handle. Um And he says, "Um, well, regardless of what it is, we all loved your energy and everybody wants your business card. So if you could give us a few, I'll pass them out. And he like bid us adieu and went back to the bar. And it was a moment that I think set the tone for the rest of our campaign and makes me think of the, you know, the difference between ignorance and bigotry. You know, he didn't have the language that he was using. He, He wasn't sure how to approach the conversation. But he kind of got down to the ground level and said, "You know, you seem like you could do a good job. We want to learn more." Um, And and for me, that you know, that gave me some humility, uh, and I think hopefully helped us win in the long run.
0: Local politics, (laughs)
1: though—that is local politics for you. Holy
0: cow! I mean, it's it's so interesting because. You know, turning on the news right now feels like a be careful that you don't get pulled in for hours and overwhelmed by all of the things that are happening. There's a chance that you can be discouraged sometimes in watching what's happening on the news with how big national politics feels and how hard it might feel as an individual to affect any single thing in such a big machine. Uh, I'm, I'm not even sure, to be totally honest, how a city council works. Yeah, uh, I might Google that when I'm actually done. But <laughs> could, you, uh, could you just give a little bit of insight for the human who might be listening who thinks, man, I feel overwhelmed by yeah. my ability to personally change mm-hmm. everything that's happening in the country, how the possibility of change or affecting mm-hmm. things locally through local politics or city councils, is a thing that may in fact afford them a chance to feel like they are contributing in a pretty meaningful way.
1: Yes, so you are right on point. You are speaking my language. I, I talk about this all the time. You know, We focus on national federal politics and the progress is glacial and it's frustrating and it feels super hate, hateful and just everybody's fighting. And uh, we do this and it feels sadistic to and I do this too. I mean, I, I love federal politics. I focus on it, I, I can't help it. And we should be paying attention. That's that's vitally important. We just had these SCOTUS cases. It's you know they do impact our lives. But when people feel apathetic or indifferent about national politics, I, I try to remind folks that when you think your vote doesn't matter, you know talk to your mayor, talk to your city council members. I won my vo- my race by 15 votes. There were 15 strangers, or maybe people I knew, who decided to walk into a polling location or mail in their ballot and make history, indirectly or directly. And those were 15 people who cared enough about their community to do that. It wasn't rigged, there wasn't an electoral college, there was 15 real people who live on real streets in my ward who decided to vote. And that, we wouldn't be talking right now if 15 people voted the other way. And so I, that makes me, you know, really engaged in local politics because I I know how, um, I know how sensitive it is and, and how much change can, and can be possible. And while each city government is very different, we have different charters and rules about, you know, engagement, um, there is so much untapped power in local government and wherever, you know, your listeners live, there, are, there is incredible power in your local government because your mayors can make a decision on Monday, enacted on a Wednesday, and you can see the results by Friday that doesn 't happen anywhere else in u s politics, but in a city, town, or neighborhood, and especially when we have conversations about racial justice or LGBTq equality, you know we have I think a particular obligation in local government to tackle these issues, and we have opportunity to do that you know in the city of Wheeling in two thousand and sixteen, we passed a non discrimination ordinance we didn 't wait on our state or the Supreme Court we said. You cannot fire a person in the city of Wheeling based on who they love or how they dress. And, you know, that was a kind of symbolic but also very tangible thing we could do as a city to, you know, make good on the promise that we are the friendly city. And so every other municipality in the country has that kind of power and that kind of authority. So, yes, register to vote. Make sure you know who your mayor is and your, your council person because they can, they can really, really change your life.
0: Let's go Rosemary, come on. Get get this local politic machine running, I am here for it. Uh, We are in the midst of the upside down coronavirus uh, Mm -hmm. here, here for how long, who knows. Uh, I'm curious how the impact of quarantining or social distancing affected the end of your campaigning because you were elected, yes, inside the window of the upside down, I believe. Yes. (laughs)
1: Very much so. You know, we did not anticipate COVID, you know, changing our lives. Nobody did. And, you know, running for office is hard as it is. And and to have to combat uh, an entire pandemic while you do it is no small feat. Um, However, we know that campaigns are won and lost based on the amount of face-to-face voter contact we have. I mean, there are numbers and stats all over the place. To you know, affirm that if you talk to voters, you have a better chance of getting elected. And you know, I knew that before COVID, and, and that's why we went out in the in the dead of winter to knock doors and, and, and meet people. And you know, we but with that said, we only were able to canvas 30% of our district before COVID hit. And, you know, I was really confident that I was going to win this race before COVID. And, and the day they said, you can't leave your home, I thought, oh, this might be the end of it. Because the other candidates in our race um, are older than me, some twice my age, uh, and who had grown up in this community. I was not born in Wheeling, West Virginia. I didn't go to high school here. I don't have a family name. And so in local politics, those things matter a lot. They're not necessarily indicative of a win or a loss, but they they do matter. And so for me, it was really, really important to kind of work against those already kind of institutionalized factors. Um, And so we had to re-strategize and and really work on our social media presence, uh, which I think at the end of the day, you know, was uh, was impactful. But again, we skated by, you know, and so uh, I I can't, I hope that if COVID had not happened, we would have had a a better um, turnout. But, um, but we did it, nevertheless.
0: A win is a win. No one else is counting the 15 <laughs> votes. You, you won by a landslide as far as <laughs> us on this podcast are concerned. I, uh, I learned a fun fact today that West Virginia actually became a state by seceding from Virginia during the Confederacy, mm-hmm. during the Civil War, in order to, rejo- to rejoin the Union. That is a pretty amazing legacy. That is now... Like beyond what you have taught me today, uh, all of the facts that I know about West Virginia as a proud serving elected member of government in Virginia. What else should people on the Rise Together podcast know about your great state?
1: Oh, yes. So we are the original rebel state, not the rebel flag state, as I like to clarify. Uh, you know, Wheeling also used to be the first, um, it, we were the first state capital in the entire state of West Virginia not long after Charleston, West Virginia um, took that over. We are an incredible state um, for many reasons. Uh, and one of those reasons is our landscape. Uh, we are the only state in the entire nation that is made up of 100% Appalachian mountains. Um, and you know, a lot of people you know, don't think, they think of Colorado when they think of mountains and Colorado is beautiful. But you know, one of the things, one of the biggest obstacles we have to work on in the state of West Virginia are the beliefs people have about West Virginia. And so, you know, we really do need to work on our tourism. We could do so much. I'm pro-cannabis. I think we could really do some amazing things in regards to uh, uh, cannabis development and and hemp uh, in the state of West Virginia. Uh, We are progressive in a strange way. I think we have a lot of pockets of progress in Morgantown, West Virginia, Wheeling, Charleston, Lewisburg, um, some of the Northern Panhandle. Uh, but we are a scrappy state. We're underdog. Uh, but we're gonna, I hope we're, we're gonna really impress people in the next, in the next few, few years.
0: Uh, good work. All right, West Virginia. I'm coming, I'm coming for some Appalachian Mountain treatment at some point. All right. We find ourselves in pride month. We're going to throw this on, I believe in pride month. I hope that we're going to have that happen. Uh, celebrating pride inside of quarantine or global pandemic feels, uh, Criminal in some way. I don't know how you would <laughs> possibly celebrate the way that you might normally. Uh, what is pride inside of pandemic looking like? Uh, how should or how can people uh, get behind and celebrate all the things pride related in the little time we have left in this month?
1: Yeah, I mean, pandemic pride sounds counterintuitive because pride is all about you know being out, literally and figuratively, and uh, you know expressing yourself unapologetically. And while we cannot do that in crowds and assembly, uh, we're already doing that you know, through mediums like this. Uh, we are engaging with folks in a positive, progressive way uh, and, and learning. And I think what, what is happening right now, um, regard, I mean bigger than LGBT uh, uh, politics, I mean we are having a, a national conversation about history, about what's happening right now, and what our country will look like for the future. And you know, the decisions that we make today, the people we elect today are going to be in charge of shaping the future of this country in a way that I don't think other elected officials have had the opportunity in the past. So, we are absolutely at an inflection point uh, in our country and, you know, I worry that if we don't capture this momentum and really set in stone the values of what it means to be an American uh, that we will not see the progress we want to see. So make sure you register to vote, you know, be proud uh, of of your uh, ability uh, to participate in this democracy uh, because, you know, it's all we have at this point.
0: All right. So speaking of elected officials shaping the future of the history of our world, of this country, of your state, what is for you next Beyond wheeling, I mean, you just won, so maybe you're not thinking yet about where you're going to be next, but uh, do you see this as the stepping stone to something that maybe takes you beyond wheeling or have you even considered yet what happens after this?
1: Yeah, I, I am sworn in next Wednesday. So I, I have a lot of work to do to earn my space as a city council member and as, a, as an elected official. Uh, I am excited to support people who run for office, whether they are, you know, people I know, people I don't know, whether it's me or somebody else. I I don't know if, you know, I will run for higher office. You know, I I, I feel like I love this work already. I feel like I've been doing it unofficially uh, for quite some time now, Uh, but I will take any opportunity to represent uh, the values that I hold dear. uh, And if I can see those actualized in a way that is uh, impactful and influential, I will do anything that I can to make that happen.
0: That's awesome. Uh, We have, as a company, previously supported the work of the Trevor Project that has done a lot of great work inside of the LGBTQ Mm -hmm. community. And uh, I'm curious if there are other advocacy groups that you have personally either been connected to or have passion for that you might share with this audience if they find themselves interested in being able to dive into understanding advocacy or supporting people who are being advocates themselves, mm. who, 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 do, who do you think they should go to?
1: Great question. Uh, a few resources that I really do love include the Transgender Law Center. They have a lot of incredible resources um, around litigation and uh, also resources around advocacy. I love them. Uh, I'm a little biased here, um, but I love the work of the ACLU uh, across the country. I'm a former um, state board member uh, here in the state of West Virginia, and the ACLU is doing, doing some of the most incredible work around advocacy and litigation in regards to the LGBT community. So if you're not a member of the ACLU, make sure you make it happen. Uh, and in, in so many states, we have uh, some incredible uh, organizations doing really good work. Here in West Virginia, we have an organization called Fairness West Virginia, um, that I'm so incredibly proud, um, to be, uh, associated with and a supporter of. And so we're, we're attempting to pass something called the Equality Act, uh, which, uh, would set in place, uh, workplace protections, although now we have a SCOTUS decision that does that for us, but also housing protections for LGBTQ people. While we do have this incredible SCOTUS decision to protect folks in their workplace, there are no protections. For LGBTQ folks in regards to housing, you can still be evicted or um, you know discriminated against in regards to um, housing in the United States. So in West Virginia, we're trying to pass a law um, to make that um, discrimination illegal. We're not there yet, but we're getting close. So I, I would I would also search in your own states um, for organizations that are doing similar work and see how you can uh, what you can do to support it.
0: Ladies and gentlemen. Rosemary Ketchum has just absolutely brought fire to this, the Rise Together podcast, having a conversation about being a first and only, the decision to step into a space where permission had never previously been granted, the willingness to, because of being connected to the spirit of advocacy that lived inside of her, take in uh, just a big step in, in the public politic space and do work now as an elected official to change the world that she works in and maybe influence others to make that same change. So uh, Rosemary, I'm so grateful for you being here today. Uh, What an awesome conversation. And hopefully for anyone who is listening who maybe has never had an interaction with someone who is transgender, now they can check this box. It has been a wonderful conversation and maybe leads them to being even a little more curious about um, any other way that they might be able to step into a posture of advocacy or being an ally on behalf of the community at large so thank you thank you thank you so much for being here today
1: thank you for having me
0: rise together is hosted by me dave hollis this show is produced by chelsea Harfouche and edited by andrew weller with production support by sterling Coates. cameron berkman is our executive producer rise together is a product of the hollis company